0: Common Stock by Octavus Roy Cohen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Grant Hicks Gerald Corwin emerged from the elevator, glanced apprehensively about the ornate lobby of the hotel, and walked swiftly toward the dining room. But as he handed hat and cane to the checker, A huge, ungainly figure bulked before him, and a mild, pleasant voice brought misery where a moment before there had been contentment. "'Gonna eat now, Corwin?' Gerald sighed resignedly. Too thoroughly a gentleman to display consciously his frank distaste, he was yet too poor a dissembler wholly to conceal it. He merely nodded and strode disgustedly in the wake of the obsequious head-waiter, with Jim Hanvey waddling cumbersomely in the rear. Corwin was disgusted with the whole affair, and particularly that phase of it which placed him under the chaperonage of the ponderous and uncouth detective. Not that Jim had been obtrusive, but the man was innately crude, and Corwin despised crudeness. One could readily understand his antipathy. The two men were as dissimilar as an orchid and a turnip. Corwin, about thirty years of age, was tall and slender and immaculate, shrieking the word aristocrat in every cultured gesture. He was unmistakably a gentleman, a person to whom aesthetics was all-important, and he could not fail to consider Jim Hanvey thoroughly obnoxious. Jim was all right in his way, perhaps, but never before had Corwin been forced into intimate association with a professional detective. He was resentful, not of the fact that Jim Hanvey was a detective, but because the man was hopelessly uncouth. Jim was an enormous individual and conspicuously unwieldy. He wore cheap, ready-made clothes that no more than approximately fitted his rotund figure. He smoked vile cigars, and wore shoes which rose to little peaks at the toes. But Corwin felt he could have stood all that were it not for Jim's gold toothpick. That golden toothpick, suspended as a charm from a hawser-like chain extending across Jim's vest, had fascinated Corwin from the commencement of their journey to Los Angeles. It was a fearsome, flagrant instrument, and Jim Hanvey loved it. It had been presented to him years before by a criminal of international fame as a token of sincere regard. Otherwise unemployed, Jim was in the habit of sitting by the hour with his fat fingers toying with the toothpick. Gerald had once hinted that the weapon might better be concealed. His insinuation resulted merely in debate. Stick it away? Why? A toothpick? Say, listen, Mr. Carwin, have you ever seen a handsomer toothpick? No, but well i haven't either that's why i'm proud to have folks see it it's absolutely the swellest toothpick in captivity no arguing against that but from the first hour of the acquaintanceship corwin reviled the fates which decreed that for two weeks he should be under hanvey's eye the thing was absurd of course corwin fearless and no mean athlete was well able to take care of himself and fulfil the delicate mission with which he had been entrusted a mere matter of securing a proxy from Colonel Robert E. Warrington and returning with it to New York in time for the annual meeting of the stockholders. He was not a simpleton, and there was no doubting his integrity. Why then this grotesque and goggle-eyed sleuth? Matter of fact, Jim had appeared wholly disinterested since their departure from New York. All the way across country he had slouched in their drawing-room, staring through the window with his great fishy eyes. Those eyes annoyed Corwin. They seemed incapable of vision. They were inhuman, stupid, glassy eyes which reflected no intelligence. Corwin fancied himself the victim of a stupendous hoax. It was unbelievable that this man could rightfully possess a reputation to justify the present assignment. The meal was torture to the fastidious younger man. There was no denying that Jim enjoyed his dinner, but the enjoyment was too obvious. Jim caught the disapproving glance of his companion and interpreted it rightly. "'S'all right, Mr. Corwin. Eatin' ain't no art with me. It's a pleasure." Corwin flushed. Suddenly he discovered that Jim was not listening. Hanvey had turned slightly, and was gazing into a mirror which reflected a section of the huge dining-room. Corwin followed the direction of his gaze, and saw that the object of his scrutiny was a man of medium-size but muscular figure who was searching for a table. Hanvey was interested, and as an indication of that interest he blinked in his interminably deliberate manner lids closing heavily over the fishy eyes, remaining shut for a second, then uncurtaining even more slowly. And finally, when the newcomer had seated himself, Jim nodded toward him and addressed Corwin. "Yonder's the answer,' he said. Corwin shook his head in puzzlement. To what? Me. I don't quite understand. See that feller who just come in? Yes. It's him.' Corwin inspected the newcomer with fresh interest. The man was of a type, one of those optimistic individuals who futilely struggled to acquire gentility and who fondly believe they have succeeded. In every studied move of the man one could discern mental effort. Even the hypercorrect raiment was subtly suggestive of a disguise. There was nothing flagrantly wrong with the man, just as there was nothing quite as it should be. Corwin, himself not an overly keen student of human nature, could yet fancy the stranger's manner of speech, careful, precise, stilted rather malapropian, with here and there a moment of forgetfulness, with its reversion to downright bad grammar. He turned back to Hanvey. Who? Billy Scanlon, alias Gentleman William, alias Flash Billy, alias Roger Van Dorn, alias a half-dozen other things. He's done time in Joliet and Sing Sing. He's a good friend of mine." The faintest suggestion of a smile played about the corners of Jim's mouth and he's why your crowd hired me to help trail you out here." It was quite plain to Hanvey, but Corwin was puzzled. "'I don't yet understand.' "'You don't?' "'Gosh, son, there couldn't be anything be any plainer. We ain't never discussed what brought you out here, but I know all about it just the same. And since you probably won't answer no questions, I'll tell you what I know. The Quincy-Scott gang started a drive recently to grab off the control of the K, R, and P railroad from McIntosh and his crowd. Before McIntosh woke up, the Quincy Bunch had corralled every loose vote, enough to give them a control in the forthcoming stockholders' meeting. When McIntosh got wise, he knew that his only hope was Colonel Warrington out here in Los Angeles, the Colonel owning about ninety thousand shares of common stock. So he telephoned the old bird and found out that he wasn't interested in the fight one way or the other, that he'd already been approached by the Quincy-Scott combination and had turned him down cold and final which seemed to indicate that with a little proper persuasion he'd be willing to deliver a proxy to Macintosh. It bein' most time for the meetin', and things bein' pretty desperate. They sent you out to get the proxy from the old gent, his proxy gettin' there meaning victory for Macintosh, and its failure leavin' the vote control with Quincy and Scott. Ain't it so?" Corwin was staring at Hanvey in amazement. The pudgy detective had been speaking disinterestedly, casually, but he had the most intimate facts at his fingertips. Corwin nodded before he thought, then bit his tongue. "'I'm not at liberty to say whether or not you're correct, Mr. Hanvey.' "'Sure you ain't. You did right, son. Don't you never spill no beans to nobody no time. I wasn't trying to pump you. I got the dope straight from headquarters. I was just telling you so you'd understand that I know why I was sent out with you, and so you'd understand, too.' Hanvey paused, and as though that ended the matter he extracted from an elaborately engraved and sadly tarnished silver-plated cigar case Two huge black invincibles, one of which he reluctantly extended to his companion. Corwin declined, and Jim sighed relievedly as he tenderly returned the cigar to its place. He lighted the other, inhaled with gusto, and blew a cloud of smoke into the air. "'I still don't understand, Mr. Hanvey.' Jim jerked his head toward Scanlon. "'Billy's been sent out by the Quincy gang. His job is to keep that proxy from getting to New York in time for the stockholders' meeting.' "'Oh!' Corwin's jaw hardened, his sinewy frame tensed, and a fighting light blazed in his fine level eyes. Jim grinned. They ain't going to try no rough stuff. That ain't Billy Scanlon's way of working. He's one of the smoothest con men in the known world, but he ain't rough. Not Billy. He's smooth as butter. Then how? Easy enough, son. He'll be on the same train that carries us back east, and before we get to Chicago, he'll swipe that proxy. At least that's what he's figuring he's going to do. Matters were clarifying slightly in the brain of young Corwin, but his curiosity was still unsatisfied. "'If I may ask, Mr. Hanvey, how do you know that he is the Quincy Scott agent?' Jim shrugged his fat shoulders. "'Easy enough. You see, it's this way. When the good Lord manufactured me, he forgot to hand me out any good looks, and he slipped me entirely too much figure. But he didn't find that out till too late, so what he did to make up for it was to give me a memory. "'I've got a memory like a camera, son.' I just naturally don't forget things, and I've sort of built up the rep of knowing more professional crooks than any other ten men put together. McIntosh knew that the other crowd would engage a professional crook to get the proxy away from you, it not being no job for an amateur. He was sure to follow you out here, and the way he was planning to work was to scrape an acquaintance with you. You never suspected nothing, which would have made things pretty easy for Billy. I just trailed along to sort of point out to you the fellow you wasn't safe with, and Billy Scanlon is him. Gerald Corwin felt a fresh respect for the fat man with the bovine expression, and a bit of his resentment vanished at the same time, for he now understood one or two things which before had left him wholly puzzled and more than a trifle resentful. They finished their meal in silence. The check paid. They rose and started from the dining-room, but Hanvey took Corwin's arm. "'Come on over and let me introduce you to Billy. It'll sort of make things easier for him, be an introduced form-alike.' and the poor fellow's got a tough-enough job on his hands as it is.' Startled but obedient, Corwin followed, and he saw the expression of incredulous amazement, not untinged with apprehension, which flashed into Scanlan's face as they paused by his table. "'Hello, Billy!' Scanlan rose slowly. His jaw was set, and it was plain that he was struggling to orient himself to this bizarre situation. He strove to make his tone casual. "'Hello, Jim.' Hanvey was exceedingly gracious. "'Let me introduce my friend, Mr. Corwin. Mr. Corwin is the fellow you was sent out here to watch, Billy. Mr. Corwin, shake hands with Mr. Scanlon.' Awkwardly, the two men—one an innate gentleman and the other a student at the School of Gentility—shook hands. Corwin was a trifle sorry for Scanlon, the man seemed afraid of Jim Hanvey. "'I'm pleased to meet Mr. Carwin. "'Sure you are,' the voice of Hanvey chimed in genially. "'Didn't you come all the way from New York just for that? "'And wasn't you wondering how you was going to work it? "'That's me. Always ready to help out a friend, Billy. "'So I up and introduces you fellers.' "'It's real kind of you, Jim,' Scanlon was choosing his words with scrupulous care, "'but I don't quite, uh, comprehend what you're driving at.' "'No?' Hanvey's bushy eyebrows arched in surprise. "'I'd sure hate to think that you wasn't telling me the truth, Billy.' I really don't understand your, uh, innuendos. I'm in Los Angeles on a vacation and without no definite objective. I'd sure hate to think that you wasn't telling me the truth, Billy. I really don't understand your, uh, innuendos. I'm in Los Angeles on a vacation and without no definite objective. Sure, Billy, sure, I know that. You're a gent of leisure, you are. But if you could grab off that fat wad the Quincy Scott people hung under your nose... You wouldn't have no objections, would you?" Scanlon's hand dropped on Hanvey's shoulder, and he gazed earnestly into the eyes of the detective, Corwin for the moment forgotten. "'Honest, Jim, I'm running straight. I ain't planning a thing. So leave me be, won't you?' "'I ain't aiming to bother you none, Billy. Goodness knows you're too much of a gent to be in jail. Only it just struck me that I was doing you a favor by introducing you to Mr. Corwin, him and you both being genuine swells and liable to have a heap in common.' Suddenly reawakened to consciousness of Corwin's presence, Scanlon pulled himself together. "'Mr. Hanvey is bound to have his little joke, Mr. Corwin. A very interesting chap, isn't he?' Corwin inclined his head gravely. "'Very.' Hanvey regarded them amusedly. "'You fellows like each other?' They nodded. "'That's fine. I'm sure glad.' He turned away, then swung back suddenly. "'By the way, Billy, we're leaving on the California Limited Friday morning, ten o'clock. We've got drawing-room A and car S-17. I'm telling you so you can get your reservations early on that train. Eastern travel is awful thick these days. They parted from the bewildered Scanlon. In the sanctuary of Hanvey's room, Gerald Corwin voiced his displeasure. You're probably a very great detective, Mr. Hanvey. Nah, not me. I'm just a fat, lucky bum. But it strikes me that you volunteered some valuable information unnecessarily. To Billy? Yes. How so?" "'About our reservation east. Why did you tell him the correct day?' "'I never lie to a crook,' said Jim gravely. "'It ain't fair. Besides, if they are good enough crooks to be worth lying to, a feller ain't going to get away with it. Billy will check up, and once he found I'd lied to him he'd lose all confidence in me.' "'But I don't see what difference it makes.' "'That's cause you're a business man, son. Detectives and crooks know the value of telling the truth. You didn't have to tell him who I was.' no that's true but it saved him a heap of trouble i don't understand your desire to save him trouble it's this way mr Corwin. the less trouble billy has to take the more time he'll have for thinking and the more he thinks the worse off he is Thinkin' son has ruined a heap of happy homes and don't you forget it hanvey was right at that moment billy scanlon was slumped in a chair in the hotel lobby smoking cigarette after cigarette and wondering what it all meant He knew Jim Hanvey of old, was familiar with the working methods of the ponderous, slow-moving, quick-thinking detective, and he knew that Jim had told the truth. Of course he'd check up, but that was a mere formality. All the more prominent criminals knew that Jim Hanvey did not lie. That was one explanation of the high esteem in which they held him, because he played fair. Scanlon was worried. He had been entrusted with a definite mission, one well suited to his peculiar talents. His job was to secure from Gerald Corwin the proxy which Corwin was to receive from Colonel Robert E. Warrington, and to deliver that proxy to the men who were fighting to wrest control of the KR&P from the Macintosh interests. That was all. The sky was the limit so far as he was concerned. His professional reputation was at stake. Besides, the reward offered by the Quincy Scott crowd was stupendous, and Billy was sadly in need of ready cash, and plenty of it. The presence of Jim Hanvey complicated matters somewhat in the way of accomplishing a task already difficult and delicate. But Billy was game and not entirely averse to matching wits with the gargantuan detective. So he waited patiently in the lobby, watching the elevator bank, and eventually he was rewarded when Gerald Corwin descended, walked swiftly to the street, and hailed a taxi. As he drove off, Scanlon stepped into another cab. "'Follow that chap ahead. Keep about a block in the rear. When he stops, you stop.' As Scanlon drove off, he glanced over his shoulder in time to see the ungainly figure of Jim Hanvey climb laboriously into yet a third taxi. He did not quite fathom Jim's motive in following, but he didn't care particularly. He knew that Jim knew he'd trail Corwin. So much for that. Corwin's taxi driver, evidently aware that his fare was unfamiliar with the vastness of Los Angeles, selected a circuitous route to the Wilshire Boulevard address of Colonel Warrington he drove through the traffic to pico and via that important thoroughfare to western avenue swinging across then to the fashionable wilshire section a tremendous area of spotlessly white homes immaculate lawns stiff and artificial gardening and aggressive affluence before the gates of a huge home the grounds of which occupied an entire block corwin's taxi stopped gerald retained his man and entered the warrington mansion a block farther down wilshire boulevard scanlan's taxi halted at a half block behind that, Jim Hanvey left his taxi. Jim alone of the three dismissed his driver, and then slowly and purposefully, puffing on a cigar, Jim waddled up the street toward Scanlon's automobile. "Lo, Billy," "Hello, Jim," "Have a good ride," "Pretty good." "Just wanted to let you know I followed you, Billy." "All I done it for was to make sure you was watching young Corwin yonder." "I'll be trotting back to town now." He addressed Scanlon's driver. Which street-car do I take to get back to town?" The driver vouchsafed the desired information. Scanlan could not forbear a question. "'Where's your taxi, Jim?' "'I let it go. Taxis are terribly expensive.' And Hanvey moved heavily away. Scanlon's vigil continued for more than an hour. Then through the gates of the Warrington home swung a limousine. It stopped briefly while Corwin alighted, paid his taxi, and then returned to the big car. The route into the city was more direct this time, and Scanlon followed Corwin and Colonel Warrington into one of the larger Broadway office buildings. He saw them enter the offices of a law firm, and knew that Corwin had won the first move of the game by persuading Warrington to issue his proxy in favor of the Macintosh interests. From his vantage point in the marbled hallway Scanlon kept watch. Eventually, he saw a young man emerge from the offices of the firm of lawyers and enter a smaller office down the hall which was marked Real Estate and Insurance Notary Public. A second young man returned with the first, and in his hand was a small notarial seal. It was obvious to Scanlon that if there was a notary in the law firm, he was out at the moment. Alone again, Scanlon ascertained the name of the notary, Leopold Jones. When Warrington and Corwin descended in an elevator a few minutes later, Scanlon did not follow. Instead, he produced from his pocket an income-tax blank, and went with it to the office of Leopold Jones. Of that young gentleman he requested an attestation of his income-tax return. Mr. Jones found Mr. Scanlon an engaging talker, and they chatted for several minutes. When Mr. Scanlon eventually departed, Mr. Jones was happily unaware of the fact that in Mr. Scanlon's coat-pocket reposed his, Mr. Jones's, notarial seal." From the office building, Scanlon visited the city ticket office of the Santa Fe Railroad. He learned readily enough that drawing room A and car S-17, California Limited, for Friday morning had been sold the day previous to a very fat gentleman. He bought compartment C in the same car. He returned to the hotel. Thus far, things appeared propitious for Mr. Scanlon. Jim was a hindrance, of course, and a grave one, but Scanlon operated on the theory that no vigilance is so keen that it cannot be eluded. There remained nothing now save the trip east. At some time between the departure from Los Angeles and the arrival in Chicago, it was incumbent upon Mr. Scanlon to secure from Corwin the Warrington proxy. That night, Wednesday, the three men dined together, Corwin's distaste swallowed up by his keening interest in the peculiar friendship existing between Hanvey and Scanlon. Corwin had always held the idea that criminals and detectives clashed on sight, that the former were habitually in flight and the latter constantly in pursuit. To see them chatting amiably about topics in general, reminiscing over past escapades of Scanlon and exploits of other criminals, and swapping theories on unsolved crimes was astounding. Corwin found it hard to reconcile himself to the fact that at the moment the portly detective and the would-be gentleman Crook were engaged in a battle of wits. He later discussed the matter with Hanvey. "'Why don't you arrest Scanlon?' "'Arrest him. He ain't done nothing.' "'He's planning to.' You can't arrest a man for what he's got in his head. If you could, the jails would be overflowing.' "'You could arrest him for that McCarthy affair I heard him telling you about. He confesses he was involved in the swindle.' "'Ah, you know, I wouldn't touch him for that. He just passed that dope on as a friend.' "'But I didn't know that policemen and criminals were friends.' Hanvey smiled wistfully. That the only friends I got in this world, son, are crooks. Most of them are serving time. Some of them I put there, but we're friends.' This here solid gold watch charm, that was given me by one of the niftiest con men in the world. I sure hated to send him up." They checked out of the hotel Friday morning. Billy Scanlon was at the station when they arrived. The heavy train rumbled under the shed, and they settled themselves for a three-day journey to Chicago. At Hanvey's invitation, Scanlon joined them in the drawing room, and they became absorbed in a game of setback at half a cent a point. Hanvey and Scanlon waxed violently enthusiastic over the game. King for high. Trey low. Well, doggone your ornery hide. You're a rotten setback player, Mr. Corwin. You ought to learn something about the fine points of the game. Nothing to indicate that a crisis was approaching, no outward manifestation of the drama which was imminent. Occasionally Corwin reassured himself by touching his coat, in the lining of which was sewed the envelope containing the proxy which controlled a railroad. Once Hanby saw the gesture and he laughed. It's safe all right, son. It'll stay safe unless you lose your coat. Corwin flushed angrily. Hanvey rightly interpreted his anger and extended a fat and reassuring hand. "'I wasn't given no dope away. Billy knew where you had the proxy, didn't you, Billy?' Scanlan nodded. "'Sure. It's the regular place.' Both men, detective and criminal, were vastly amused by Corwin's obviousness, and Corwin knew it. But he didn't care. Perhaps the lining of a coat was the regular place to keep a valuable document. Certainly it was a safe one and Hanvey might have been more careful than to remove the last vestige of doubt from Scanlan's mind. Corwin knew that Scanlan could not possibly get the proxy. Such a thing was impossible during the day, and at night Corwin planned to use the coat as a pillow. Following a light breakfast the next morning, Corwin made his way forward to the club car for a shave. He removed coat, collar, and tie, for the moment unmindful of Scanlan. When the hot towel was removed from his face and fresh lather applied, he noticed Scanlan sitting with two other men, awaiting his turn for a shave. Next to Scanlan was Jim Hanvey. Corwin sighed relievedly. The barber shaved the right side of Corwin's face, then turned him in the chair to get at the other side. As he did so, Scanlan cast a glance of simulated impatience at the waiting men, rose, donned coat and hat, and left the club car. But the coat which Scanlan wore on leaving the car was Corwin's. In five minutes' time he returned. Corwin was just emerging from the chair. Hanvey was slumped in a corner, immersed in the very female pictures of a weekly periodical. Scanlan removed Corwin's coat and extended it to that young gentleman. "'Took your coat by accident, Mr. Corwin. Just discovered my mistake.' Corwin's face blanched. He grabbed the coat and touched the spot where the proxy had been. For a single wild instant Corwin contemplated bodily assault and only the hulking figure of Jim Hanvey and his slow, drawling voice prevented. "'What's the matter, son? What's the matter? You look all head up.' "'This thief! Whoa, son, whoa! That ain't no kind of name to call a crook!' Corwin whirled on Hanvey. "'You don't know what you're talking about. This man has that proxy. He just stole it from me!' Jim was unperturbed. He turned mildly reproving eyes upon the amused countenance of his friend. "'You didn't go and do that, did you, Billy?' Mr. Corwin seems to think so. Well, I'll be doggoned. Let's get together and kind of talk things over. Back through the swaying, grinding cars went the procession, Scanlon leading, Hanvey next, and Corwin bringing up the rear. Corwin was in a cold fury. He felt that he was being made ridiculous. They were laughing at him. He didn't like the looks of the whole business anyway. What assurance had he that Hanvey and Scanlon were not Confederates? They were suspiciously intimate, and Hanvey must have seen Scanlon... In the privacy of their drawing-room Corwin's sinewy figure towered over Scanlon. "'If you don't give me back that proxy, I'll break every bone in your rotten body.' Jim restrained the young man. "'Them's awful harsh words, Jack Dalton.' Corwin shook him off. "'I think you're as crooked as he is. I've had my suspicions from the first, and I'm not going to allow any pair like you to make a monkey of me.' It was Scanlon who spoke. "'Just what are you going to do about it, Mr. Corwin?' "'I'll do a-plenty.' Giving me a-licking isn't gonna get you anywhere except in jail. "'We're in New Mexico now, and if you lay a finger on me, "'I'll have you dumped in the Albuquerque lockup tonight. "'And you can't do the same to me because you haven't got a lick of proof.' "'Will you let us search you in your compartment?' "'Surest thing you know.' He turned to the detective. "'Come on, Jim. Get busy.' Hanvey shrugged and reached for one of his black cigars. "'Ain't gonna waste my time, Billy. "'If you've got that proxy, there ain't no use of my searching for it now.' i've just got to think things over and get a hunch where you put it then i'll get it do you mean interrogated corwin furiously that you're not even going to search this man i do i mean just that exact thing son well i will Scanlon meekly submitted to the search once as corwin's trembling clumsy fingers probed into a pocket he deliberately winked at hanvey and at the conclusion of the personal search scanlan led the way to his compartment Twenty minutes later Corwin, dispirited and dully angry, returned to the drawing-room, where he found Hanvy gazing stolidly out of the window. The detective spoke without turning his head. "'When you get peeved, son, you sure get peeved all over.' The younger man did not answer. He slouched opposite and tried to think, to piece together the ends of this tangled skein. He was distrustful of everyone, particularly of the slothful Hanvey. Jim's only other remark did not add to his comfort. You sure was careless with that coat, Mr. Corwin, awful careless." Hanvey was right. He had been careless. Inexcusably so. True there had been a feeling of safety in the knowledge that Hanvy was also in the barber shop, but there was small solace in the thought that it wasn't entirely his fault that too great confidence had been placed by his employers in Hanvy's ability. And now, should Hanvy fail to recover the proxy, he, Corwin, was ruined, a brilliant career abruptly and ignominiously terminated. Meanwhile. In compartment C, behind a locked door, Scanlon was busy. He obtained a table from the porter, and then proceeded to open his suitcase, to unpack it, to remove a false bottom and extract from the space disclosed a sheaf of legal-appearing documents. Each one of these was strikingly similar to the proxy which lay beside them on the table. Then slowly and painstakingly, Scanlon prepared a duplicate proxy, being very careful that his forging of Colonel Warrington's name should be patently a forgery. The finished job was a masterpiece. No one unfamiliar with Warrington's signature could guess that this was not genuine, yet a comparison left no room for doubt that Scanlon's work was a forgery. Carefully he inscribed the attestation, affixing thereto the impress of the notarial seal he had stolen from the office of Mr. Leopold Jones. That done, he viewed his handiwork with pardonable pride. He next destroyed the other blank proxies which had been prepared by the Quincy Scott crowd in New York placed the forged proxy in the false bottom of his suitcase, and put the genuine proxy in an inside pocket of his coat. At lunchtime, Scanlon found Hanvey sitting alone at one end of the diner, while Corwin sulked at the other. The crook paused by the detective's table and cheerfully accepted Hanvey's invitation to join. Jim nodded toward the tragic figure at the other end of the car. "'You sure have played Tarnation Thunder with that kid, Billy.' Scanlon shook his head. Naturally tender-hearted, he was genuinely regretful. "'Business is business, Jim.' "'Yep, so it is. Kind of tough on the kid, though. He feels bad knowing he played right into your hands. And I ain't feeling any too spry myself.' The detective's dull eyes turned toward his companion and blinked slowly. "'Where have you got that proxy, Billy?' Scanlon laughed. "'I haven't admitted that I have it.' "'No, and I didn't ask you to admit nothing. The point being that you can't get away with it, kid.' i'll have you held when we get to chicago and search you a search that is a search Scanlon registered apprehension that ain't fair jim you ain't got a lick of proof that i have the proxy nope but i intend to get it from the diner Scanlon went back to the observation platform to think things over he did not relish the prospect of an additional thirty-six hours on the same car with hanvey he contemplated dropping off at albuquerque then thought better of it jim would merely remain with him and then an idea came at eight o'clock the train pulled into the handsome station at the capital of new mexico for a one-hour layover scanlon walked swiftly up the street toward the post office there he prevailed upon a registry clerk to accept a letter in a long envelope he enclosed a note to ferris scott and with it the proxy he had that day stolen from gerald corwin he sent the document both special delivery and registered it would get to new york a day or two late perhaps but still in ample time for the meeting Besides, it was not essential that it get there at all. It was only necessary that the Mackintosh forces be deprived of its possession. Scanlon would have destroyed the thing in preference, but he knew that he would have difficulty in collecting his fee unless the document itself was produced. But even though Billy Scanlon had left the train at Albuquerque, Hanvey and Corwin had not. Hanvey, making quite sure that Scanlon had gone, entered Scanlon's compartment in Corwin's company. The manner of the big detective had momentarily lost its sluggishness. He questioned Corwin. "'Where'd you search?' Corwin told him. Jim shook his massive head. "'How about his suitcase?' "'I looked in there, of course.' "'Sure, of course you did, son. Naturally. But let's try it again.' Jim dumped the contents unceremoniously on the seat. With deft fingers he went through every garment and even inspected the contents of the rolled travelling case. "'You see—' commented Corwin resentfully. I told you nothing was there. Hanvey paid him no heed. He had closed the suitcase and was inspecting it carefully. Then suddenly he turned it over and thumped it with a heavy spatulate finger. His pursy lips creased into a smile. Think we got something, son. What? We'll see. The suitcase was reopened and Hanvey fumbled inside for a moment. Then a button unfastened here and one there, and he removed the false bottom. He extended the envelope to Corwin. Better see that he don't get another chance at it, son." With fingers that trembled, the younger man spread open the forged proxy, never questioning its genuineness. There it was—Warrington's signature, Jones's attestation, the notarial seal. Corwin seized Jim's hand and wrung it gratefully. His voice was choky. "'I've been a rotter, Mr. Hanvey. I suspected you of being a Confederate. It's all right, Mr. Corwin, it's all right. Don't slop over.' "'I can't help it. I feel like a cur.' "'Go on,' Henry was touched by the boyish gratitude of his young friend. "'Let's get this stuff back in here. Scanlan'll spot that we have the thing, but it wouldn't be decent to leave his stuff all spread out like this.' Ten minutes before leaving time, Scanlan returned to his compartment. He opened his suitcase, discerned the disorder, and grinned. Then, pretending disappointment and fury, he rapped on the door of drawing room A. Inside, he faced Corwin. You wanted to start something a little while ago, Mr Corwin, he snapped, when you thought I copped a paper from your coat. Well, I'm here to say that whenever you're ready, you just wade right in, because no matter what I've done, I never robbed a gent's suitcase. A hard, chill smile appeared on Corwin's lips. He rose slowly. From the window seat, Hanvy viewed the tableau amusedly. Get out, ordered Corwin. Put me out. Get out, or I shall Scanlon's eyes met those of the other man, and Scanlon discreetly withdrew. But that night Scanlon lay in his berth smoking and smiling. Success had blessed his strategy. The Warrington proxy was en route to New York by registered mail, the envelope specifically marked for delivery to addressee only. Better still, Jim Hanvey thought he had recovered the document. There was the strongest point in Scanlon's favor, the fact that Jim was smugly contented. Now all he had to do was to assume the attitude of a man thwarted. He was a trifle sorry for poor old Jim. Yet it was no lack of acumen on Jim's part, but rather a superlative cunning on his own. During the final twenty-four hours of the journey to Chicago, Gerald Corwin clung to the supposed proxy with pitiful grimness. Alone with Hanvey in their drawing-room, he sat with his hand against the pocket of his coat. He shaved himself. He slept with the coat for a pillow. "'He got it once,' he explained to Hanvey. "'He won't again,' Jim smiled. "'Once ought to be enough for any man.' "'What made you think of a false bottom to that suitcase, Mr. Hanvey?' "'Same thing that made Billy think of the lining of your coat. Plum obvious. Gosh, I'll bet Billy's raven!' Corwin was frankly admiring. "'And I thought you were no good. I even thought you might be double-crossing Macintosh.' "'That's right, son, that's right. Never trust nobody, and you'll never get a shock. That's my motto. The honester a person is supposed to be, the easier he can crook you.' They reached Chicago at noon of the following day. Hanvey and Corwin boarded the Pennsylvania for New York. Scanlan secured a berth on the New York Central. Freed from the Scanlan menace, Corwin thawed slightly and attempted to make late amends to his benefactor. He even summoned sufficient courage to request a closer inspection of Jim's gold toothpick, and to say complimentary things about the fearful weapon which had been anathema to him. Jim bloomed under the praise of his decoration. Fellow that gave me that had sense,' he said earnestly. "'It ain't only beautiful, it's useful.' Corwin repressed a shudder. I suppose it is. The gratitude of the younger man was pathetic. He grimly determined to invite Jim to dinner some night, the ultimate test of his fortitude. They reached New York on time and repaired immediately to the office of the K.R.N.P. There, Gerald Corwin delivered over to Garrett McIntosh, the Warrington proxy. McIntosh congratulated the young man and assured him of the director's appreciation. But before leaving the room, Corwin made a straight-eyed confession. "'You must thank Mr. Hanvey,' he said. "'The proxy was stolen from me on the train, and Mr. Hanvey recovered it.' "'Good.' "'Mackintosh dismissed Corwin with a nod and reached for his notebook. "'How about it, Hanvey?' Jim grinned. "'Don't listen to nothing, the kid says, Mr. McIntosh. "'He's game all through, that lad, but it was funny.' At that moment Billy Scanlon faced Ferris Scott and gave a detailed report of the success of his mission. A gleam of admiration appeared in the steely eyes of the financier. Good work, he commented briefly. You'll get your pay when the proxy arrives. The following day at noon, Scanlon presented himself again at Scott's office. His reward was paid in legal tender, to avoid the embarrassment of a check. Scanlon nodded and pocketed the money. The proxy? he questioned. We've destroyed it. Simply wanted to look it over to make sure we were safe. That night, Billy Scanlon celebrated. The following morning, he awakened with a violent headache and was aroused by a ringing of his telephone. "'Jim Hanvey,' announced the slow, drawling voice on the other end. "'Can I come up?' Jim came. He regarded Scanlon interestedly. "'I judge they paid you off all right,' he commented. "'They did,' admitted Scanlon. "'What about it?' "'Nothing. Nothing in particular.' Hanvey glanced at his watch, a tremendous affair, gaudily engraved. "'Only that the stockholders' meeting takes place in just about one hour.' and as a friend I advise you to beat it, and beat it quick.' Scanlon sat upright, hands pressed against his throbbing forehead. "'Me beat it?' Uh "'Uh-huh.' "'What for?' "'Taking pay from the Quincy Scott crowd for something you didn't do. They're liable to get awful sore.' "'What are you talking about, Jim? You know good and well I got away with it.' Hanvey shook his head. "'Nothing of the kind, Billy, and I'm advising you as a friend to beat it, and stay put.' The eyes of the other man narrowed. "'You must be getting into your second childhood, Jim. Do you mean to tell me that you haven't yet found out that the proxy you stole from my suitcase was a fake?' Hanvey's voice was quite matter-of-fact. "'Oh, that? Sure, I knew all the time that was a fake.' "'Well, then—' "'What you ain't never stopped to realize,' explained the detective, "'is this. The proxy you swiped from young Corwin wasn't no good, either.' Scanlon rose abruptly. "'What do you mean, no good? Old Man Warrington executed it?' "'Sure he did. And the next day he executed another to Macintosh. That second one was the only one worth the paper it was written on. It nullified the first, and I had it in my pocket all the time. And when that real proxy appears at the meeting today, the gang you were working for is liable to get all head up. You see, Billy, you and Corwin both had the wrong dope. I wasn't on that train to keep you from getting that proxy off Corwin. I was there to see you did get it so you wouldn't bother me none, me being the real messenger." Headache forgotten, Billy Scanlon leaped for his suitcase and commenced a frenzy of packing. "'I might have known you were too easy, Jim. I might have known it. Anyway, they paid me off yesterday.' "'That's what tickles me,' replied Jim. "'You gettin' paid for that proxy. It's a swell joke on them fellers. And say, I got something to show you. You know, young Corwin was awful grateful for what I done.' "'He should have been.' "'He was.' He sent me a present this morning. Ain't it swell? And beaming with pride, Hanvy exhibited the gift of the fastidious Gerald Corwin. It was a gold handled toothbrush. End of Common Stock By Octavus Roy Cohen.